the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right, back to the conversation. Brooks, is this becoming a bit of a pandemic, not only in terms of the reporting, but just in terms of the methodology by which bullies can carry out their bullying? And I asked that question because back in the day, it would be maybe an audience of a half a dozen kids and a bully engaging in whatever bad behavior that he or she was engaged with, but that was about the extent of it. Today, you can easily go online and extend your bullying of an individual to the tune of hundreds or thousands. In fact, recently, Consumer Reports found that over 800,000 kids have been victims of bullying on Facebook. You know, I think the uh, the statistics that I've uh, seen is about 8% of students are relentlessly uh, victimized. And I think it's victimization, not necessarily bullying, but it's victimization that's becoming uh, an epidemic or pandemic. I, I just wish that... Um, I wish students would would not suffer. Um, and when you interview the so-called bullies, which I've I've met with hundreds and hundreds of students who have been uh, labeled as aggressors or bullies, and not, not one of them have said, "Yes, I'm a bully." Uh, and then I say, "Well, what in the world? Why did you say that to that person? Why did you do that to that person?" And they say, "Well, because she did this to me, and he did this to me." And I say, "Oh, so you don't see yourself as a bully?" You see yourself as a victim. They're like, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm a victim. You know, these students who are so mean often feel justified in their retaliation of their perceived enemy, and they get labeled bullies. But when you talk to them in one-on-one conversation, they actually feel like victims. And the worst acts of violence in the world, whether it be homicide or suicide, the two very acts that we're afraid of in this industry, of anti-bullying industry, those are always committed by people who feel like victims, not bullies. It's almost a cycle then, isn't it? Because as you're describing it then, it is a person who feels as if they are a victim somehow, victimizing a victim, and it just begins as sort of an endless cycle. Yeah, it is. And that's why teaching very basic social skills to your children is uh, the greatest way to help bully-proof children. If you victim-proof them, You'll bully-proof them. And one way to do that, there's really three ways. Number one, uh, have a sense of humor. An emotionally healthy child can learn to take a joke about themselves and make a joke about themselves. They know they are not perfect, and they might have a flaw that could be exploited as a joke. And if you study humor, you realize all humor is insults. And so a person with a good sense of humor will be able to even insult themselves or be able to laugh at an insult of someone else. So, uh, you know, get off your high horse, parent, and... Uh, lighten up and laugh and teach your child to do the same, that we could all make fun of ourselves. Roasts, celebrity roasts are a great example of emotional healthiness. Uh, the second thing is um, learn that, um, you know, sometimes people consider you the bully and you've wronged them somehow. You really, really wronged them. And so they're mean to you. And so the best thing you could teach your child to do is say, why are you mad at me? And if I've done anything, can I apologize? That's the second thing. But the third and final thing is if someone's just trying to bully you just for the fun of it, realize that the only way they will continue is if you get upset and try to make them stop. 
But if you don't get upset and you give them permission to be a jerk and you say, feel free to be mean, I don't care, it doesn't affect me, you guard your heart and you don't get upset and you stop trying to stop them, then they're going to get bored and leave you alone. And uh, the best example is a dog chasing its tail. If the dog, <laughs> the dog sees it moving in the corner of his eye and he's programmed to chase things to try to make it stop, and he ends up going in circles, never catching his tail, but if he could just realize stop running, you know, and uh, and the tail will stop, you know, leaving you. And the same thing with children. Stop trying to insist that the bully stops being mean and stop getting upset, and they'll fizzle and leave you alone. Those well, there's, And there's a bigger things. picture here, maybe, and, and I'm glad you brought up that analogy of the dog chasing its cha- tail, because it, it seems as if we're trying to restrict this conversation, generally speaking, to bullying that takes place on playgrounds, on campuses. It's all about the kids. But you know what, Brooks? In, in my lifetime, I have known office bullies. I've known colleagues that I would consider to be bullies, not many of them, but they do exist out there. Uh, this kind of antisocial behavior, as we pointed out in the first segment, is really indicative of, of man's fallen nature of our sin condition, and not necessarily because of, of you know, any kind of un- unique DNA to one individual or another that just makes them nasty toward other people. And so it would seem to me that if we take the approach that we're trying to stop mean people from being mean and, and trying to train our children to, uh, uh, to react in that fashion, we're, we're, we're creating a scenario where that dog is going to continue to chase its tail into adulthood because let's face it, how, how, how are you going to deal with the bully in the office and the bully in the next cubicle? The, the irony here is that we're, we're trying to offer a placebo to, to address an issue in childhood because it makes us feel uncomfortable, but aren't we in the end ill-preparing our kids for the reality of adult life? I think so. I think we should teach children that, hey, if someone's, um, if they're causing objective harm to your body or property, or if they're limiting your liberty, or they're causing you to lose your job, or they're beating you up to a bloody pulp, or they're stealing your stuff or vandalizing your property. Those are very real crimes that we have laws against, and we need to keep ourselves from being a very true acute victim. Uh, on the other hand, if they're just trying to hurt your feelings, um, you know, that's something that you can protect, that laws cannot protect. Um, and, and besides, if you said something that hurt somebody's feelings, would you like to be punished for that? Uh, the forefathers gave us the First Amendment right to free speech on the premise that the American citizens would have the, uh, the ironclad social skills to be able to take uh, a negative opinion about them or a different approach or disbelief in their religion or whatever it is so that everyone could be free to speak, which is the democratic cornerstone of all liberty. Uh, so if we lose that, if we lose the differentiation between objective harm and subjective harm, real crimes versus hurting our feelings, if that line becomes blurred, then we create a culture of victimhood. We create an emotional welfare state where the citizens believe the government's responsible to give them utopia without any negative social skills. And that is really the definition of emotional uh, illness. 
If you've just joined our conversation, Brooks Gibbs on the line with us tonight. We're talking about this topic of bullying and what exactly it is, how we are responding to it. We're hearing more and more news stories of late that have been filled with terrible stories of bullying uh, to the point where some kids, as we uh, shared one story of Maricela with you at the top of the hour, uh, considering committing suicide, attempting suicide over bullying. I'm not trying to suggest that some kids' behavior cannot be absolutely cruel, But at the same token, there seems to be a lack of balance that we're failing to strike here. How common is this issue of bullying? Oh, I'll give you an example that I think will resonate with you immediately. A brief time out, back with more as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. It would be nice if we could say, let's try to shut down bullies. Let's do a better job at... Uh, dealing with aggressive behavior, but the reality is we can't always do that. And the reality is that the only one that we have any power or control over is ourselves. As we're learning tonight from Brooks Gibbs, National Social Skills Educator, he's taught more than 2 million students in some 1,500 schools and campuses all across North America how to better address this issue of bullying. And at the end of the day, it really becomes not trying to foster this culture of kindness and singing kumbaya with our enemies, but rather understanding that at the end of the day, it would be better if we did a better job at developing our kids to become more resilient. Speak to that point, would you, Brooks? Well, resilience is something every parent wants for their child. If you ask any parent, would you like your child to be emotionally resilient or hypersensitive to things that don't cause them physical harm, like insults and stuff, they would always say, oh, yeah, like emotionally resilient. But when their child becomes a victim of, quote-unquote, bullying, mean behavior, uh, they don't like the idea that we are asking their child to become more resilient. They want you to punish the bully, kick the bully out of school. And so what happens is when you suggest emotional resilience as the solution to their child's bullying problems, uh, they say you're victim-blaming. And I, I, I always say, no, we're not victim-blaming. You know, earlier, Craig, you said it's pouring rain right now. You know, it's not, it's not anyone's fault that the rain is falling. But if you own a house, it's your responsibility to make sure that it's rain-proof. Uh, you have to take personal responsibility. If it snows, it's not your fault. No one can blame you for, do, for not doing something you didn't mean to do, right? It's snowing. You, it's outside of your control. But it's your responsibility to shovel the sidewalk. Now, uh, that is what we're asking students to do. Take personal responsibility for your own feelings and your own problems, and uh, don't expect everyone around you to be respectful. Uh, and when you do that, you'll be less vic- you'll less likely to be victimized and more likely to uh, be happy. You suggested earlier, Brooks, that one of the more effective techniques in addressing this is to use humor. Uh, to sort of, um, how should we say, derail any of the control that a bully has over another person in, in, in responding. And, I, and it, it's interesting that you mention that because I think of the, the Scripture mandate that we should, um, uh, you know, uh, love our enemy and in doing so have the effect of heaping coals upon their head. But we're not asked to heap coals upon our, our, their head. We're asked to love our enemy. So give me an example. Let's do some role-playing here so parents can better understand how this works. You suggested returning humor for a nasty word. So if I came up to you and we're on the campus at school and uh, we just walked up and I said to you, uh, Brooks, where did you get that haircut? It looks like they put a bowl on top of your head. 
Well, if I was a typical kid, I would say, what are you talking about? You better stop it right now, Craig. You better stop right now. And, and then, of course, you'd call the teacher over, and the teacher would come yeah. and report, and yeah. we'd all but have to meet in the principal's office. Right. If you, so say that now to me, uh, and I'll respond with a, with a comment that's humorous, to your point. Brooks, where did you get that haircut? It's so ugly, it looks like somebody put a bowl over your head. Oh, you you don't like this? This is my tribute to Jimmy Neutron, man. It's like the first cartoon guy. <laughs> and I got to tell listeners, that was not rehearsed. That was completely spontaneous. <laughs> so I mean, humor is amazing. You know, uh, humor, it's even, you don't even have to be that sophisticated. Some people say, well, you know what? Uh, my kid isn't that sophisticated. He's not going to be able to come up with a punchline. Well, you know, it's very interesting. Bill Cosby, he's a legendary comedian, and he wrote a book called So. And the concept was if someone says, hey, little Bill, your mom's poor, he would just reply with, so? Hey, little Bill, y'all live in a shack. So? He would just reply, so, or the word and, your point is, and. That's humorous, man. And that that takes all the uh, the power away from the individual who's trying to upset you. So it really is about taking the weapon of words away from them, disarming them. If they if they realize that you're not going to play the game, uh, you, you, you do escalate the situation quite rapidly, don't you? Oh, totally. You nailed it, man. If, someone, if everyone's just listening for a second and they want to know what bullying is, anywhere in the world that's doing seminars on bullying, they always say the same thing. Bullying is an imbalance of power. Someone's having power over you. Power to do what? power to drive you crazy. And as long as you keep getting upset, you're giving them power over you. But the second, I mean the second, you could care less about what they say, you give them freedom to be mean, who cares, and you respond with kindness or humor or whatever, then you maintain your power. They feel like losers and they leave you alone. It's that simple. And the reality is the bully is looking for a rise. The bully is looking for a certain type of reaction. They want to get under your skin. They want to irritate you. They want to make you cry. They want to um, they want to extract out of you some kind of a negative reaction. If you react positively, if you, if you return humor or kindness for their nastiness, uh, what are they going to do to retaliate? Start being nice to you? Well, I guess that's the only option left. Well, uh, at, at the very least, they'll leave you alone, but at the very most, they'll be nice to you. That's why the golden rule is the ancient solution to the modern bullying problem. It says uh, treat others not the way they're treating you, but treat others the way you want to be treated. And people are like, why? Well, because we're biologically wired for reciprocity, and as I'm nice to you, you're going to naturally want to be nice to me. So, yeah, the golden rule is genius. Jesus says on that one law, you know, love the Lord with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself— and he says the golden rule in that is all the law and the prophets. Uh, so I think we need to bring back the golden rule. Now, let's make a distinction here. You're not suggesting that if it turns violent, if it becomes an illegal act, I mean, for example, kids posting terrible things on the Internet, things of that sort, you do mm-hmm. draw the line at certain types of bullying behavior, correct, in terms of the response. Yeah, so the golden rule in love allows you to stop people from committing crimes. So it's a very loving thing to uh, stop someone from shooting up a theater or something terrible like that. It's, it's the loving thing to do is to stop that person from damaging. Uh, but that's, that's, yeah, criminal behavior that's causing objective harm to body or property. But if it's just subjective feelings, meaning my feelings are hurt 
if they're subject to how I process it, how I think about those words, well then, as Eleanor Roosevelt said, no one can make you feel inferior without your permission. Well, that can't be a crime, and that's where you can respond love, and, and, and love uh, never fails. Let's talk about resources, Brooks, because I know a lot of this information is new. This has not been the traditional approach to bullying in, in recent years. And, of course, the irony is, as hard as school districts and administrators have tried to push this whole, let's just stop the bullies, uh, the irony is they seem to become more prevalent. So clearly a lot of that approach is not working. But in terms of resources for parents, so they can get a better handle on, um, you know, how to encourage their kids to do a better job at making friends, managing their enemies, uh, how, to, how to deal with the issue of aggressive behavior when someone comes at you, and then most importantly, how to build resilient kids. What kind of resources can you make available? You bet. We have what we call the one-week bully cure. That's B-U-L-L-Y, bully, and the cure, C-U-R-E. If you go to bullycure.com, uh, we literally take the parent and we take the student and we take them through a one-week, six-days uh, uh, video training. And we say, man, if, if that bullying doesn't stop within that six days, you can have your money back. Uh, you know, we, we, we failed to help you. And uh, we've helped thousands and thousands of people within three days just going through our program. It's over. It's done. You know, the child has happiness. The parent has peace. Uh, because when the child's suffering, the parent suffers just as much. And so uh, that's what we've created, BullyCure.com. And, of course, the beauty of this is it's not only preparing our kids to become more resilient in the here and now, but every adult listening, you know. You run across them all the time. People that you work with or next-door neighbors all across life. We run into people that fit that bully profile. Maybe it's not as juvenile as the example of what took place on the campus when you were in third grade, but the source of the behavior, the motivation behind the behavior, the acting out comes from the same place. It's just taking in a bit of taking place in a bit of a different form. So we're really talking about better preparing our kids not only to deal with bullies today, but to deal with bullies later on in life as well. BullyCure.com is the website, BullyCure.com. Great resource for you. We thank Brooks Gibbs for being with us on the program tonight. And, again, a wonderful resource. I want to encourage you, if you have a parent who, who has a student that's dealing with this issue, you need some, some insight and advice, great place to check out, BullyCure.com. That's BullyCure.com. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. When you think about it, I think most of us that are married can agree that we tend to focus on the sense of happiness and satisfaction out of our marriage relationships, and not necessarily looking at marriage from the viewpoint of the purpose of marriage based on the outcome of a God-centered kingdom marriage. Everyone no doubt agrees that a good marriage is more pleasant and beneficial than an unhappy one, but equally important, a good marriage is supposed to be a model of the heavenly union that God created. Joining us today on the program is the founder and president of the Urban Alternative. He's senior pastor at Oak Cliff Bible Fellowship in Dallas and speaker on the nationally syndicated program, The Alternative. Great to have with us today on the program, Dr. Tony Evans. And as always, Pastor, a privilege to have you on the show. 
I'm delighted to be with you. Thank you for having me. Let's talk about this new book that you've written, Kingdom Marriage, Connecting God's Purpose with Your Pleasure. It, it strikes me as unique in that, unlike many of the books out there on the topic of marriage, you take us all the way back. In fact, you extrapolate examples of how each spouse, man and woman, um, should behave and treat each other based on that first union that we see, that union model between Adam and Eve. Tell us more about that. Often and unfortunately, uh, marriages are not tied to God's purpose. They're just tied to uh, the pleasure that people want to get out of it, and there's nothing wrong with that. But when God created the first marriage, the first couple, brought the first two singles together, it was to fulfill a divine purpose, in fact, three purposes. Uh, He said, we're going to make man male and female. And the first purpose would be that they would be a reflection of who we are. Um, made in our image. Our image is a mirror. So we want to mirror in the physical realm what we are like in the invisible spiritual realm. Well, God is one God composed of three co-equal persons who are one in essence and yet distinct in personhood. The Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Spirit, but they make up one family or one Godhead. So what God wanted to do was mirror that in the creation of mankind. In fact, when God relates to history, one member proceeds from the other. The Father sends the Son, the Son sends the Holy Spirit. So that's why uh, Adam came from Eve and a baby comes from, uh, 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 excuse me, Eve came from Adam and a baby comes from Eve, because that's how history proceeds, like God proceeds into history. So God God is looking for a mirror. So when you detach God from what marriage is, why marriage is, and how marriage works, the mirror becomes distorted. The second reason was for not only reflection, but for replication. Be fruitful and multiply. But multiply what? Not just multiply people, multiply images. God wants mirrors to produce new mirrors. And so the idea of childbearing is to create mirrors that are a reflection of the parents who are a reflection of God. Then the third reason is for ruling and let them rule. So men and women in the marriage and the development of families were to exercise dominion over what God created. So the reason why Satan wants to destroy marriage is not just because he wants two unhappy people, he wants to destroy God's purpose of dominion or ruling so that we wind up being ruled by him than ruling over the creation God has placed under our authority. You know, Pastor Evans, one of the complaints that we often hear from women who are frustrated in their marriage relationship, they'll say things like, well, you know, I got into this marriage and I understand from a biblical perspective that my husband is supposed to be the head of the family, but my husband shows no sense of responsibility whatsoever. He doesn't do a good job at work. Uh, he, he seems to not necessarily take charge when it comes to working with me and raising our children, things of this sort. And I'm struck by the fact that inside of the new book, Kingdom Marriage, Connecting God's Purpose with Your Pleasure, very early on, you extrapolate a very important lesson for men. And that is the notion that even before God gave Adam Eve, he gave Adam responsibility. Expand upon that, would you please? Absolutely, because if a man is not willing to be responsible under God, then he can't be properly responsible for the one God places under him. Mm. And so it would be the responsibility of the man and the accountability of the man to own responsibility under God. And that, therefore God gave him a job, God gave him a home, the Garden of Eden, God gave him his commandments, and he gave him responsibility name all the animals. He was to be a successful single before he could be a responsible husband. And uh, unfortunately today, far too many women are marrying men uh, 
who have not owned that responsibility unto God. In fact, the biblical definition of a man is responsibility unto God. Exodus chapter 34, verses 23 and 24, God calls all the men of Israel to meet with him and to, to give them instruction on how they were to, to function as men. And then he says, then I'll send you back to your family because the family would be in jeopardy if the men failed. And so God always starts with the man. That's why in the garden, God said, Adam, where are you? Not Adam and Eve. Where are y'all? <laughs> I guess this can also be an important lesson for women to understand that, you know, there's often this sense we hear it said all the time that a woman will marry a man. She recognizes he has some shortcomings and faults, but thinks that once I marry him, I'll get him fixed. And in fact, as you're suggesting here, women should be watching very carefully as to the kind of man that they think might make a good husband, because their sense of responsibility, particularly in their relationship to God in single life, is oftentimes a harbinger or an indicator of what they're going to be marrying into, isn't it? Well, yes, certainly, and two things need to happen. First of all, you need to answer the question, if this man never changes, am I willing to live with him as he is for the rest of his life? Because what you don't want to do is you you don't want to project a change that may never happen. Secondly of all, he should have to pass the test of another man who is the kind of man that you respect and honor so that there's other eyes, it should be the father of the of the woman, but if it's not, some mature Christian man, so he's got to pass the test of another man and, and not just the emotional test of the woman who's in love with the man. A sense of uh, servanthood here is important. We certainly see that modeled throughout Scripture in relationship to uh, our relationship to God and God's relationship to us. We also see it demonstrated when it comes to the design for a marriage relationship. And oftentimes men are very easy to sort of default back to the, well, God set me up as the head of the family here, and so my wife must be subservient to me. But yet in the pages of Kingdom Marriage, you suggest that this sense of headship applies to both husband and wife. What do you mean by that? Well, first of all, we, we, we have to understand that the First uh, Corinthians 11.3, God is over Christ. It says Christ is over every man, a man is over a woman. Everybody comes under the authority of somebody else. So just as the husband claims headship over the wife, Christ claims headship over the husband. And Christ's headship over the husband trumps the husband's headship over the wife, because you are obligated to the one at the top of this pyramid. And of course, Christ and God are perfect. But a man has a head. So if you're expecting your wife to submit to you, then she should see what it looks like when you submit to Christ. And if you're not submitting to Christ, then you shouldn't be shocked that you're having trouble getting her to submit to you because all she's reflecting is your lack of submission. So it is critical that men come under authority if they expect to be in authority. It's always struck me as interesting as uh, men are often uh, quick to remind women that they should uh, they should uh, uh, be obedient to their husbands, and yet the the continuation of that passage says, "In husbands, you should love your wives as Christ loved the church." And of course, if we look at that model, we realize, well. Christ so loved the church that while we were yet in our sins and uh, not walking in fellowship with him, that he, in fact, gave his life for the church. That certainly resets that whole, that whole notion of the relationship then between men and women, doesn't it? Well, absolutely. It, uh, it, it means that you must become your wife's savior. And the last time I saw a savior, he was on a cross. Mm-hmm. So if you're not willing to sacrifice at all, then you're not really, to, really ready and willing to love like Christ loved. 
If you're just joining our conversation, a visit today with Dr. Tony Evans. Of course, you recognize the voice. He is speaker on The Alternative with Dr. Tony Evans, nationally syndicated on some 1,000 radio stations across the country. He is also senior pastor of Oak Clip Bible Fellowship in Dallas and the author of a new book called Kingdom Marriage, Connecting God's Purpose with Your Pleasure, newly published by Focus on the Family Books. We'll take a brief time out, come back to more of our conversation as our visit with Dr. Tony Evans continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Welcome back to Lifeline on this edition. We are privileged to have join us on the program Dr. Tony Evans. Of course, Dr. Evans is senior pastor at Oak Cliff Bible Fellowship in Dallas, speaker on the nationally syndicated The Alternative with Dr. Tony Evans, and the author of a new book, Kingdom Marriage, Connecting God's Purpose with Your Pleasure. One of the things that you talk about in the book, Dr. Evans, as we mentioned before the break, is the sense of of learning to submit ourselves to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And I guess that's a really key component, because if we expect to be able to live out the marriage union in the fashion in which God called it to be, way back there in the Garden of Eden, we really need to understand what submission to God or Jesus' Lordship really means, don't we? Absolutely. It means what he says goes. Uh, why you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say, the Lord says. So that means I'm sub- I am committed to obeying him, and my decisions will reflect his decisions. So that means I want to know what he thinks about the things related to my life, my world, my family, my finances, and I bring his thinking to the table to bear when I deal with my responsibilities as a husband and a father. When I ignore that or don't care to learn about that, then what I'm saying is I'm not obligated to find out what my head thinks, even though I'm demanding that my wife and children find out what <laughs> what uh, what I think. And so it becomes a conflict, and it, and what it does is creates division. And once you have division, you've invited God out of the relationship. See, God can only function in unity. He cannot, he cannot be at home where there's disunity. So Satan creates disunity because we are out of alignment in order to keep God at bay, leading to ongoing conflicts in the, in the home. Let's talk about some of these um, examples of division or disunity within the marriage relationship. Uh, one thought that came to mind as I was reading your book in preparation for our conversation today, and again, for folks just tuning in, we're visiting with Dr. Tony Evans. He's got a new book out called Kingdom Marriage, Connecting God's Purpose with Your Pleasure. And Dr. Evans, a couple of weeks ago, a good friend of mine got up in the middle of the night to go to the bathroom, stumbled, and busted his shin up against an exercise bike in the bedroom, and this has turned into a major ordeal that what seemed to be at first just a little scrape eventually got infected. Now it's becoming a wound that won't heal, and there's been multiple visits to the doctor's office and prescription of antibiotics and so forth, and it's it's still an ordeal that he's dealing with. And I'm struck in that example by um, one of the sections of the book where you talk about the comparison between physical wounds and emotional wounds and how even in that case, something that starts out to be basic or simple can grow into a festering open wound that can have really severe um, implications for challenges or problems in a marriage relationship. Tell us more about that. Well, absolutely. Um, As you said, in the physical realm, wounds that may be simple once becomes infected can become very complicated and very damaging to our physical body. So the scars that we carry by things we say, attitudes we have, uh, actions we take, 
can uh, start off maybe in our minds small, but when it gets infected, uh, it, it produces devastations in the relationship. That's why when there is a wound, it needs to be bandaged, and uh, you you got to put some ointment on it pretty quickly so that infection doesn't get in it. That's why the Lord doesn't want us to go to bed angry before He wants us to deal with it before the sun goes down, because time will bring about infection when wounds are unaddressed. And so what we want to do is to make sure that we are caring for our mates, caring for our marriages, and doing it on a regular basis so that it's not allowed to uh, uh, deteriorate. Many couples go days, months, and then years without having addressed some things in their relationships that could have been solved easier earlier if they took it more seriously. So uh, it, take, it, it means prioritizing the well-being of the relationship as quickly as possible. And a lot of this also tends to snowball, as you're suggesting, and then that sense of of being wounded turns into anger, bitterness, resentment, ultimately unforgiveness, and that can become a major roadblock in the success of any marriage relationship. But what do you say to the person listening right now who says, well, Dr. Evans, here's what you don't understand. I, I, I have a spouse that has hurt me and wounded me, and he or she has never taken the time to apologize and I'm just so hurt and upset about all of this. How can I possibly forgive an unrepentant spouse? Well, there are, there are two kinds of forgiveness. First of all, there is, um, there is individual forgiveness where I release a person from a, a wrong done to me, even though they've not asked uh, for forgiveness. Uh, one time I was, uh, a guy ran into my car and uh and and then ran off and then uh, drove off so here i'm i'm going around with a dent that i didn't create and every time i look at that dent uh i'm reminded i'm i'm upset about what that man did who did not apologize and did not seek to right the wrong but what that dent was doing it was controlling me and controlling my emotions and controlling my feelings so i had to release that person even though they, they, they hadn't apologized so that I wouldn't have to live with the debt. And that was the decision of my will. But what, what that didn't mean was that I was reconciled with that person because sometimes people put those two together and those are two, two they're related, but they're two distinct acts. On the other hand, there's transactional forgiveness where a person, uh, I forgive a person and they have repented, which opens the door for reconciliation. So what this person is saying is there's, there's an individual, I'm having trouble forgiving them because there's no transaction. They haven't asked for forgiveness. But what I would recommend a person to do is to sit down with their spouse and say, what? You hurt me by doing A, B, and C whenever it was done. I'm still carrying the pain of that wound. I just want to let you know that I'm going to release you from that so that I don't walk around with a dent in my soul. But mm. I also want to let you know we can never fully be reconciled and have a meaningful, dynamic, growing relationship until you're willing to address the sin and infraction against me. That way you've defined forgiveness properly, but you've also clarified what it takes for a reconciliation to occur. And there really needs to be then some sense of surrendering from both sides, doesn't there, in, in the sense that the wounded or the, the bruised spouse needs to surrender some of that anger and resentment that is a result of, of the infraction, and the individual who created the wound in the first place can, has to kind of surrender some of that ego that perhaps stands in the way from the ability to say, you know what, I recognize I hurt you, and I'm sorry. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, the, the, the person who committed the sin needs to repent. 
And repentance, repentance is not just a word, it's a turning. So they should see actions, fruit, that demonstrates you really mean it, you really meant what you said by things you do that are different, that they can see, touch, taste, smell, and hear. We're obviously, Dr. Evans, in this short period of time, not going to be able to do much more than just kind of hit some of the highlights of uh, all of the wealth of insights that you offer inside the pages of Kingdom Marriage, Connecting God's Purpose with Your Pleasure. But before we leave you, I'd like to have you perhaps spend a moment and talk about a concept that you discuss at length in the book, and that is this notion of filling your spouse's love account. What exactly is that, and what are the benefits? Well, I, I, you know, when I get the couples, I, I tell the man to do four things, and I tell the woman to do one thing. I tell the man, number one, every day express something of value, something small of value that lets your wife know she matters, like a, 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 an unexpected phone call, a non-sexual hug, a note left in an inconspicuous place, a um, cupping her hand. Something small, but done regularly, because men are torrid for being inconsistent, that lets her know you are on my mind. Secondly of all, to pray with her daily. Uh, and I, uh, when I say daily, I mean regularly, because I know you won't hit it every day. But, but let her know that God is a part of this relationship, and you're going to bring your relationship, your marriage, your family before God on a regular basis. Thirdly, give her one hour a week where she can vent, up to one hour. She can't take more than that, but one hour, so that nothing is allowed to be built up. That means you don't get to be nagged, but she doesn't have to hold it in for weeks and months, because she has this freedom where you're undistracted, no football games, baseball games, talking about golf anything else you she she can zero in on your eyes and she can share if if she's doing this every week well she won't need the whole hour after a while because then it won't have accumulated and then uh fourthly uh make sure you are dating her and by dating her i don't mean asking her what do you want to do today i mean you you doing things that are fun for both of you you can't discuss any problems on a date that's strictly for fun and you do it on a regular basis given you know the realities of your life then I ask the woman to do one thing, make a big deal about his four things if he does them. Just celebrate the fact that he's showing you attention, praying with you, listening to you, dating you, because that will inspire him to keep doing it because he sees there's a great payoff. So everybody wins in that situation, and everybody's tank stays full, and nobody gets to run on empty and live on fumes. Some tremendous insights inside the pages of a new book by Dr. Tony Evans. It's called Kingdom Marriage, Connecting God's Purpose with Your Pleasure. Again, newly released by... Focus on the Family Publishing. You'll find it at the usual suspects, Amazon.com. You can also order the book directly online by going to Pastor Evans' website, simply TonyEvans.org. That's TonyEvans.org. Well, Dr. Evans, as always, we certainly appreciate both the time and the wealth of insights and knowledge on God's Word that you share. Thanks so much for being with us today. Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of KFAX. Copyright Salem Media Group. All rights reserved. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. 
The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.